Philippians chapter 4, continuing the uh, Philippians series. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer. Father, we do just uh, declare that we need you, Lord, in this place. We, we need you, Jesus, to come and reveal these truths to our hearts, that they would be more than words on a page, but as you have inspired them, your Holy Spirit would make them uh, truths that would transform our heart. They would be written on the tablets of our hearts, Lord. We pray for a fresh work of your Holy Spirit in our midst. We pray, Lord God, that you would um, bring freedom. Um, You would bring peace that's supernatural in our own lives and in our relationships and community. We pray that you would do this work, Lord. We can't do it. We come with plans, but we submit them to you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as Pastor G was sharing about the uh, high school camp, or high, high school camp, um, as a former youth pastor, I really would recommend if you have a high school student, you are a high school student, you'd go there. I, I've seen countless high school students' lives transformed, have a glimpse and a grasp on the grace and love of God at those camps. And one particular um, time as a high school pastor I can remember, although it wasn't a camp, it was a mission trip to El Salvador. Uh, I was a part of this leadership team. We led a trip to El Salvador. Um, <clears throat> the times of ministry were really fruitful. Um, we had outreach, several outreaches, lots of people making professions to come to know Jesus. And one of our off days, we took the kids to the beach and uh, El Salvador uh, tides, they change really quickly. We didn't know this, but um, as we're playing, we're playing football just in the shallow depths, parts of the, of the water. We're there in the sand, um, complete stable ground, complete you know, standing firm on stable sand for a long ways. We went out 50 yards, 80 yards to the point where people on the shore were now just miniature sized and we're playing football and we're joking, laughing. Hey, I'm still standing up, still my knee knee high. Um, And then all of a sudden the ground gives out from underneath all of us and the tides start getting huge, probably, I mean, way overhead. And uh, I'm not exactly, you know, I'm from Fresno, so I'm not exactly like Aquaman, you know. Um, Water sports is not really my thing. Um, I can maybe duck a bullet, and I can probably, you know, tell you fashion from 10 years ago. That's where I'm from. But, um, But water sports is not really a big thing in Fresno. So, um... As I'm in the water, all of my high school kids, they know exactly what to do. They're gone, bolt out, and I'm left out in the, op- out in the wide open sea, and I'm just thinking, really, God, in El Salvador? That's how I'm going to go out? Like, <laughs> a mission trip in El Salvador? I mean, give me Mexico at least. I- I'm thinking about my wife and my daughter at the time. I had one daughter, and I'm thinking, you know, this is how I'm going out. And I yelled to um, another leader who was there. I just said whatever I could. Th- I just lied. I, just, my, I think I, my leg, something, you know. And um, I got a cramp in my leg. And then he came up. He's like, your leg okay? I was like, or he said, you okay? My rib, I can't. I, I, I forgot what my lie was, which normally happens. I'm a horrible liar. And... Um, 
And so he comes and he, he grabs me and now we're both stuck out there and all the kids are back at shore watching this happen. And, uh, and, and another leader comes and now he grabs us and he says, we're caught in a rip. I didn't know what that, uh, caught in a rip. I thought he said, we're gonna rip. So <laughs> I started like trying to swim harder and now I'm more tired. And uh, I didn't know what a rip, I didn't know that you're supposed to go around a riptide. Um, so I'm completely spent. I'm pretty much, I'm settled that I'm going to die here in El Salvador. Until this little El Salvadorian man who's just this small, ripped, muscular El Salvadorian in a Speedo comes and rescues me. <laughs> I think he greased his body before he got there. Because it just felt wrong. But at the point, at the... <laughs> <laughs> at, I swear to you, at the moment, he could have been naked. I wouldn't have cared. I would have just, whatever it takes to get back in. So here comes this little El Salvadorian man on the shore. You know, he's the hero, and I'm the zero. And I'm just like in front of my high school kids, just their leaders, you know, horrible. Um, not the proudest moment. And it actually has nothing to do with the Bible study, but I was thinking about the intro. No, it does, actually. Um, and it's this sense here. When Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he starts by, um, by sharing them with them uh, the joy that can be found in Jesus. We've seen that several times. But as he begins to close this letter, he closes with uh, a desire for them that they would stand fast spiritually, that they would stand fast in their relationship with Jesus, that spiritually they would have stability, that they would have a peace that would pass understanding, it would go past their circumstances. That's his heart, that's his prayer. And here's the reality. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, here's the hard truth, is that in life, the bottom drops out sometimes and wave after wave hits you. And what you realize is, my peace and my joy is more bound up in my circumstances than I care to, care to admit. That's the reality of it. That's what we all come to find out. That usually my peace, my joy, it's more bound up in how well I'm doing or things around me are going. Or well, I have some external props that are going well for me. Paul's desire is that they would know a peace that goes beyond that. But there's a problem here. There's a problem in this church in Philippi. And I think it's the same problem that you and I maybe have faced, are facing, and will face in the future. And before he starts to mention this, the problem that's there, he, st he mentions a principle. He says, here's how you can know, or here's basically the key to uh, having a spiritually stable and supernatural peace. Because what can happen is that we come into these walls, we worship, we have an emotive experience sometimes, and we leave these walls, and when you leave, you're still gonna be faced with frustration with other people, feeling like you're not being respected like you should be, not having satisfaction in your relationships because you're not receiving the, the feedback that you would desire. Some of you, your relationships in here are that way. Some of you, your relationships with children are, are less than desirable. They're not responding in any way to you. Any, of the, any attempts that you've made, marital relationships in this room or relationships with one another. That's the problem that was in this church. And 
it actually begins to create division within the entire body and actually um, starts to impede the work of the mission of the gospel being spread. Whereas at one point, there was such a concern with um, contending for the faith outward, there's such a contention with one another inward that it's hindering that relationship. It's hindering their peace. It's bringing anxiety, the opposite of peace. What's the principle that Paul gives us? It's in verse one. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love, you almost get this, this sense of, as Paul says, I love you with the longing of Christ. I desire you with the same desire that Christ has for you. And I long for my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He uses these two words. First, he starts with that word, therefore, and then he moves to stand firm in this way in the Lord. And here's the principle. Here's, here's the, the first key to standing firm or supernatural peace is that he says it's, it's all in the fact that you have to take these supernatural truths or big truths and apply them into small places daily. The small places of life, relationship primarily, you've got to take the big truths that he's been talking about, therefore, and thus, and apply them to daily life. What are those truths? When he uses the word therefore, he's referring back to the previous chapter when he's talking about verse 20, chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The first truth, he says, is that you have to apply this cosmic truth that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there's a king, there's a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You were created for another place. And it is in that place when all is said and done that all the beauty that you've longed for and that I've longed for, all the satisfaction that we've ever longed for is finally gonna be actualized, realized in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a citizen of heaven. Paul says you've got to take that big truth and apply that to small places, daily principles. That's what one author says. Now, some might be in here and say, I do want that peace. I want supernatural peace. I want to know what it's like to have stability in my life. I don't have that. That's what I want. But I don't necessarily agree that there is, uh, I don't agree, agree with dogma. Or being so dogmatic, why does there have to be some, one way? I don't believe in doctrine or a theological truth. That's fine for you, but it's not for me. And here's the case, is that Paul doesn't begin with pragmatics. He doesn't start by saying, here's three easy steps towards having peace in your life. See, most philosophies, even most religions or faiths start with some form of pragmatics. Here's what will work for you. Three easy steps, says Cosmo, to a better you, or whatever the case might be. They begin with pragmatics. Paul says, you have to let this truth come and enter in your heart. And the question that you have to ask is, is it true? Is Christianity true? Not, will it work for me? You have to begin with the place of saying, is it true? Because if it is true, and that's the only place to find authentic and genuine joy and peace outside of yourself, 
and not in somebody else, that it will never be found anyplace else. Second, someone might say, well, I just don't like the idea of dogmatics, dogma. And here's the other principle to that is that if I say that I don't like the idea of objective truth, then I have no I have no grounds or basis to say that anyone is a hypocrite at any time or to be ever upset with injustice at all. Because to lean on the idea that there is hypocrisy and injustice is implying that there's truth and there's law. And to have law, you have to have a lawgiver. Paul doesn't start with pragmatics. He starts with a doctrine. And he says this doctrine has to be infused, put into practice in the small places in everyday life. Not just cosmic truth, but gospel truth. That's why he uses the phrase, in the Lord, verse one, stand firm, in the Lord, my beloved. Verse two, he speaks to a couple of women in the church, which we'll get addressed in a second, that they're to agree in the Lord. Verse four, they're to rejoice in the Lord. Verse seven, at the end, um, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus or in the Lord. This truth of the gospel, that I was created in the image of God. That's why you desire community. That's why you desire a relationship. You were created to desire to love and to be loved. You were created to be in relationship because that you're created in the image of God. He placed that within you. You were created to love your children because that's who God is. You're created to share with another, with a spouse. That's who God is. God created us in his image, but through sin and rebellion, that relationship, that connection that we have with God and with other people was severed and has been severed. But God, on his mission, desiring you, seeing value and worth and beauty in you, because you're created in his image, leaves his own community Jesus says, I will go. If there's no other way, I will go. And he takes your place and my place. He drinks from the wine of the wrath of God so that we can drink the wine of joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that gospel truth, that cosmic truth, those ideas, Paul says, you've got to preach that to your heart on a daily basis until it begins to transform and heal and warm your heart to the point where you see other people and you see, I don't need you to satisfy me. I desire to share my life, but ultimately my satisfaction comes in the idea that I'm not only created in his image, but through faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm accepted in Christ. Like he desires me. Now, when you read these verses, we have a tendency to think that, I mean, they're great Christian coffee cup verses, right? Like you see all these verses on Christian coffee mugs. You say, oh, wow, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, rejoice. Or uh, verse six, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Or verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever's true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable, any excellence, worthy of praise, think about these things. This is like classic Christendom coffee cup verses. 
But these verses aren't just final exhortations as Paul's leaving. He says, bye-bye, rejoice always, you know. Pray about everything, don't worry, see you later. This is one section dealing with one specific issue. And that's the issue of anxiety and the lack of peace that are in the people that he's writing to. See, one of the genuine signs of a life that's been truly transformed, not just morally reformed, is a supernatural peace, a trust based on my identity in Christ, a joy, Paul says, right? That's what he says in Galatians 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, kindness and gentleness, self-control. So there's a principle that is to be applied here, a doctrine that's to be applied and rejoiced in. But Paul writes because there's a problem, there's drama. And again, it's the same drama that we'll face here. And this drama actually reaches Paul in his jail cell. And although we don't, we're not really told what the drama is, it doesn't seem like it's a doctrinal, a serious doctrinal issue because Paul oftentimes addresses serious doctrinal issues like in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. It doesn't seem to be a serious sin issue. Like, um, you know, he addresses specific sin issues and people sometimes by name, 1 Corinthians, for example, and in Philippians, Colossians. It seems to be something that's more that's bubbling up beneath the surface. But it reaches Paul in his cell or in his Roman um, um, custody because it's beginning to divide other families and the church as an entirety. And it's starting to undermine the very thing that has, ha has been happening. We don't know much about the conflict, but we know a little bit about the people involved. It says in verse two, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, listen, these women have been with us from the beginning. They're genuine believers. Like they come into the church service. They've labored with us since the very, with me since the beginning. I've enjoyed their company. Paul actually commends who they are and says, I see God's grace having been working in their lives. But something's happening right now. They're not taking that doctrine and that big truth and putting it into the everyday places in their life. And as a result, their own selves are at the center and the glory of God is at the perimeter. They're now championing, championing their own agenda, which is what oftentimes happens when we don't see who Jesus is. We don't grasp the truth that I'm, my name is written in the book of life. I'm I'm a citizen of heaven. This world is not all there is. What happens, we begin to be angry with people that come against the kingdoms that we try to set up on our, on this, in this world. These are genuine believers. Paul says, so then where's the pettiness coming from? 
Like your, your names are written in the book of life. It says that they were, they were labored side by side, or another, another word for that means that they were literally on the same team. They were at the one-year anniversary. Yeah. Like they were a part of this church plant, but something else is coming up now. He says, what I want you to do is I entreat you, I beg you, agree in the Lord. He doesn't say that you're to agree on everything because it's just not gonna happen. God's created us with different personalities and different desires, and that's good and that's okay. He doesn't say that you're to agree on all the policies or you're to agree on every you know, situation, but he does point them back to agreeing in the Lord. Now, here's why he says that. It's because when I forget that I'm not my own, that I am in Christ, that he desires me, he accepts me, I am his beloved, when I forget my exclusivity to Jesus, I immediately start to establish my own cause. I look for other people to give me validation. And when you don't give me validation, when you don't show me the respect that I'm desiring, when you don't give me the honor that I'm looking for, or the credit that I think that I deserve, because now I'm looking for my joy in you or in somebody who's just not able to produce that, I become frustrated with you, angry, and respond sinfully. Paul says, Euodia and Syntyche, you, you say that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus himself, he laid down his life for you. That's the doctrine that you have to see, the beauty of the death and burial of Jesus. That if Jesus says, I'm gonna do my own thing, I'm not gonna seek the welfare of other people, I'm not going to initiate forgiveness. If Jesus had done that, there wouldn't be a letter to the Philippians. There'd be no cross. There'd be no resurrection. There'd be no forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. These women need to recognize that they're in the Lord and submit their, their lives to God's instruction. And so their dispute, in their dispute, the only way it's gonna be solved because it has not worked out one-on-one -on -one, Right, Jesus tells us if another person sins against you, go and tell them to their face. Go confront them. If it doesn't work, bring another in. That's what we see here in verse three. Paul says, I'm asking you true companion, yoke fellow, help these women who've labored with us in the gospel. It's in the context of community that genuine connection is taking place. Paul says, I want you to encourage them to initiate peace, forgiveness. But what we typically do is we say, and this is true for marriage, I guess, I hear, I don't know. Um, no, I know pretty well after nine years. I'm not gonna apologize first. I wasn't even in the wrong. Why should I apologize first? She's the one who did it. She's the one who said it. She's not understanding me. What Paul is saying is, I want you to agree based on who you are in Christ. That you're accepted, you're beloved, 
your joy and peace isn't hinged upon how they are treating you or even the, the surrounding circumstances. We don't know the situation surrounding this disagreement because it really doesn't matter. See, the peace that he talks about in verse six, which we'll get to in a second, he says is a peace that passes understanding. Oftentimes, when we're trying to have peace, what we do is we try to find all the facts that we possibly can. Who said what? Who started what? Why did they say this? How is it going to end? Paul says, this is a peace that passes your understanding. It goes beyond the details of what's been happening. It's a peace that comes from saying, God, I'm going to cease from striving and realize that you are God. Paul doesn't point to for um, to, 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 to solve the issue or to, to resolve the matter. Paul doesn't point them to moralism. He doesn't say, you need to go memorize more verses. You need to just, I mean, stop being selfish because you're ruining the mission here. Come on, get along with the program. You're a Christian, act like one. Paul doesn't say that. Much of Christian counseling is that. It's moralistic approach to a deeper issue and problem. Nor does Paul say that we should point them to emotionalism. I really want to explore your past, Euodia. I really want to explore all of the hurts that have come against you. All of the past wounds. Let's talk about your childhood. Not that there's anything bad about that, but Paul doesn't explore those depths. That might come up as areas of why they're refusing to trust, but what it boils down to is an unbelief and fear. Unbelief that God is good and he's good enough for me to trust and to obey and fear that if I do trust and obey the Lord Jesus, I'm gonna get the shaft or the wrong end of the stick. So what do I do? I'd rather be anxious. I'd rather worry it out or fight it out. And most of us handle our problems in a fight, flight, or fright mentality. Rather than stopping, surrendering, putting our faith in God and who he is, trusting him to work it out, even if it looks like it's not, looks different from what I feel like it's gonna work out. Nor does Paul... Um, encourage them to um, just change their approach. Here's, here's the problem when I, when I view other people or another person as the object of my joy and I'm misplacing my joy and peace in the Lord Jesus through faith in him, through applying the big truths to small places of the gospel, or of the cosmic truth that he is God, he is king, this world is not all there is. When I'm not doing that, what I tend to do then with my relationships is I use them or I use my relationship as a means for manipulation, not as an opportunity for ministry. I begin to manipulate the person who's not making my kingdom or my, what brings me joy, I manipulate them so that I can change them to fit what I think will bring me joy. But what ends up happening is they become bitter and I become frustrated. Rather than seeing this as 
God, you've allowed this in my life. This is an opportunity not for me to manipulate, but to minister. As a result, our marriages are broken. Our relationships in churches are broken. Even the way that we handle our children is broken at times. We want them to be a certain way. You don't act that way. I start to manipulate you. I begin to respond in sinful anger or sinful attitudes. Rather than seeing this as an opportunity that God has given me to minister, Paul actually points out the good in these two women who are not acting as they should. Ultimately, the source of their joy and of healing is gonna be found in them seeing that Jesus himself desires them even as bad as they are. None of us here can throw stones at these two women because there's relationships in here that are broken and that's as a result, your peace is rocked. I have to come to the understanding this doctrine of who God is, how he sees me, that he himself desires me, that through the new covenant, he gives me a new set of desires. He comes into my life to change me. And now when I experience his delight, I'm not proud or puffed up. I'm not self-hating nor self-exalting. I'm just, there's humble confidence and as a result, I can be free to minister to you, not be parasitic leeching off of you. Until we realize that there's no legitimate longing in our souls beyond his power providing it. And the satisfaction coming from him, listen, all change will merely be cosmetic. It will all be merely outward moral reform. And when the next wave comes, I'm trying to manipulate the situation. I read a book by um, uh, Larry Crabb. It's called Connection. Very good. I highly recommend it. Um, in the book, he talks about um, the key to, ma- to understanding manipulation in two, two ways. He says that to understand manipulation, or if we're manipulating, you have to understand the difference between goals and desires. Goals are something that I can pursue in strictly in interpersonal relationships. I can pursue goals. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I I want to spend more time with my children. Those are goals that I can pursue that really don't require the, the, the help of anybody else. Desire is something that I want to see happen and it requires the cooperation of another. The desires of what we should pray for, for in the lives of other people. But what ends up happening is I confuse desires with goals and I start to manipulate because I think that you should change and you're not changing, therefore I'm trying to manipulate you now to change. Whereas my goal is that, if if my goal is that I wanna have peace in this situation no matter how you respond to me because ultimately my joy and peace is not bound up in you. If it is, it's bound up in my circumstance which is totally not the gospel. Then therefore, I see that the change is within me irregardless of how you respond or you react to me. Now, we oftentimes pray for our goals to happen. Oh God, make me a better husband and don't act on them, and instead act on our desires and not pray for our desires. 
Because to pray for somebody or to pray for a situation to be worked out and then to approach and to initiate peace, it requires faith and humility. Two things that are contrary to our nature. So how do we, how do we cultivate that? Paul's going to tell us in verses 6 through 9 how we cultivate that. First, he told us that there's a, a, a doctrine that we, have to, that we have to put into small situations, big truth into small circumstances. We've got to preach this to our hearts on a daily basis. I have to preach to my heart daily my acceptance in Jesus through the cross, that it's through the cross that Jesus Christ accepts me alone and my faith in him alone. Ultimately, new life in relationships, in hum- my humanity personally, and in community relationally happens through death. It happens as I see who I am in the Lord, that Jesus Christ himself leaves his community on my behalf. He himself is left without community. He's cut off so that I'll never have to be cut off from the Father. So that I can experience new life. Jesus himself dies for me, takes the wrath from me, and now I'm free. But secondly, it requires death on my part, death to myself. And sometimes that's the hardest part. The early Puritans called this, categorized this in two ways. They said new life happens through vivification new life, the spirit of God uh, reviving me and me being open to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life through keeping in step with the spirit, Galatians 5, vivification, being revived. And it also happens through mortification, putting to death the sinful deeds of the flesh, which are constantly coming my way. I'm constantly hit with the face with the temptation. Why didn't they appreciate that? Why didn't they give thanks to me? Why aren't they appreciating me? Why aren't they showing me respect? How is it that I've asked for this and that person still isn't honoring that? At those points, I've got to take that. I've got to mortify my flesh. Just as we, we have to be you know, renewed in the spirit in every other area and put to death the deeds of the flesh on a daily basis in every other area, not just relationally. Peace enters as we put this doctrine into small places. But secondly, peace also enters. We cultivate this, he says, by, by walking in certain disciplines. Verse, verse six, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's where some may say, This is where Christians always talk about prayer. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to pray for this. But I've prayed and I haven't seen anything happen. Or how am I supposed to give thanks in all things? I don't know how it's going to work out. This prayer that Paul mentions here, it's not just a a prayer where we're shooting up our requests. Jesus desires that we come to him with every detail of our life. But notice this prayer, this communication with God, it's with thanksgiving. It's from the vantage point of me looking at all the possible scenarios and saying, God, whatever you do, 
I trust you as my father. And it's through this discipline of prayer that we see the wisdom of God and we refocus our situations and circumstances. Through prayer, this thanksgiving prayer, I re-see my situation and it causes me to see the wisdom of a loving father. Like it says in Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, but he does it according to his purpose. I'm free then to come to him and say, whatever you choose to do, God, you're my father. I don't know how, how it's all gonna work out, but however you work it, it's gonna be good. Tim Keller talks about this um, as he's talking about a passage similar to this uh, at, from this passage, and he quotes um, John Newton, who sang the song Amazing Grace, and John Newton says that everything that God lets through is necessary. Everything that God does not let through must not be necessary. See, we have this tendency to look at God in the, in the form of when he doesn't answer our prayers and say, how could a good God allow this? So you're gonna face waves and storms, possibly as you leave these walls that are gonna want to remove your peace and remove the stable ground of peace in your life. When we go to God in prayer with thanksgiving, I thank him with a sense that he's my loving father and that whatever he does is gonna be good. I challenge you to do anything otherwise because Jesus said, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, or have a, a right understanding of things that are eternal. You gotta come as a child. My little four-year-old daughter is one of the most careful, detailed people that I know. Um, yesterday, we were going to the park to have a little picnic, and as we're leaving, she said, um, she asked me if I had the garage door opener. Dad, did you get the garage door opener? No, I had the key, but I, I just said no because I know how she does it. She just worries these things through and she thinks about it. She's five. Did you get the garage opener? No. How are we going to get in? How are we going to take a nap? How are we going to eat? You know, I immediately, boom, jump into it. I said, Vea, you're going to climb through the wind? No. I said, <laughs> I said, I have the key. I, I got it taken care of. Don't worry. And that puts it to rest. We go, we fly kites, we play. She's not worried about it again. I have this tendency to freak out and to worry, but when I come to God through prayer and thanksgiving, I see his wisdom, it changes me. But here's the deal. It might not change your circumstance. Like your circumstance might not change. That relationship might not change. Financial situation might not change, but here's what does change, is I trust my father that whatever he works, he's gonna work it for change in my life. He's gonna use it to transform me as a loving father. And just as you know, I said, my daughter may freak out. She's five. In the end, we go play. She forgets about it. Dad knows he's gonna take care of it. He'll climb through the window if he needs to. But not only through the discipline of prayer is peace brought to our hearts relationally, also through the discipline of meditation it causes us to recenter our our, our entire circumstance as we see the grace of God. He says in verse eight, 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What do you think about? We talked about the gospel of grace. We, as we see the gospel of grace, it causes me to rejoice in Christ. He uses that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And we're like, what? Rejoice in the Lord? Don't you know what I'm going through? Paul knowing, he says, always. Are you kidding me? Always. And then knowing that we might question, he says, yeah, again, I say rejoice. But what do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ himself delights in me. He rejoices in me. He shows me his love through the cross. He dies for me. He takes my place and my wrath, that all is forgiven, that all is right between me and him. And that although I have turned my back on him, as the disciples did turn their back on the cross, what seemed to be so horrible was the best thing for them. And as they look at Jesus, they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you know what we're going through, what we're facing? Jesus wakes up in the boat and he looks at the storms that are taking their peace and he says, why did you fear? Where's your faith? Have I ever given you any reason to doubt me? After he hushes the storm. See, God could change your situation in a moment. He stills the seas. He puts the stars into place. But the very fact that he might not be changing your situation calls us to come to him with prayer and thanksgiving to see, to refocus on his wisdom and to, again, meditate on his grace and his love for me so that my heart is re-centered. And then I might experience loss and I'm sad. But this isn't my center. I'm not shaken by it, ultimately, because my center is Jesus. He's the foundation of my joy. I might experience promotion or blessing, but I have to speak to my heart and say, whoa, 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 don't trust in that. Jesus is my joy. He's the one that brings me delight because he delights in me. As the psalmist says, he delivered me because he delighted in me, David says. You've got to let those truths begin to melt your heart to the point where you begin to see your circumstances and situations and say, but this isn't my home, this isn't my center, and I'm accepted. So I don't really, though I desire a healthy relationship with this individual, I'm free to now initiate peace, whether they respond or not to me. And lastly, we not only receive the grace of God through meditation and the wisdom of God through communication with him, through the presence of God, we begin to be freed. He says, verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Put these doctrine into practice and the God of peace will be with you. No longer does he say, the peace of God will be with you. Now he says, the God of peace will be with you. The presence of God is ultimately what we're seeking when we pray with thanksgiving and when we're meditating on his grace through his word. 
It's not principle, it's not something that we're trying to do. It's the presence of a person that is there with you, changing you from the inside out. That's the good news of the new covenant, that you can't do it, so by faith you call in the Lord Jesus Christ to come and live his life through you. Because you see his death for you, it motivates you to die to yourself for the sake of others. For the brother or sister who has wronged you, you approach them today and say, it appears that I've offended you. I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do? For the petty situations that ultimately just wound us and grate on us, we look at the cosmic truth of, this is not all there is. Why am I trying to create my own kingdom here? We look at the gospel and say, I'm accepted in Christ. Through his death, he frees me to die on behalf of others. And that creates a gentleness within us. That begins to create an even-centered uh, uh, response within us. That's what he says in verse five. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And whether it means the Lord is near or the Lord is coming, he says, this will begin to melt your heart, to make you gentle, to make you, really it means a moderate or radical evenness of temper to where I'm not freaking out or flipping out because in the end, I'm trusting him. I'm drawing my acceptance from him. And this is a piece he says in verse seven, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard like a Roman wall, is what it really means. It will surround your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that it's a one-time thing? No, it means that daily I've got to preach these doctrines to my heart. Daily I need to uh, practice these disciplines so that my heart is melted by the new covenant of who I am in Christ, that I'm accepted in Christ, that he gives me his power. And as I walk in step with the spirit, I don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh to fulfill their desires. As we come in a time of communion right now, we come to experience the presence of God. That's why we come to pray with thanksgiving and worship him so that when we leave these walls throughout this week, we don't want to merely have done church. We want our hearts to have been transformed so the supernatural peace of God begins to live inside of me. Isn't that a heavy thing? And additionally, if there are people here, as Jesus said, if you've wronged your brother, or your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go make it right with your brother. You make sure that you don't leave today without having said it right, without initiated that peace. Lord, we thank you for the peace that you've initiated with us, Lord. <laughs> you've made it right between us and you, God. It is finished. And Lord, we rejoice in that. We want to come and and just repent of having centered our hopes in anything else. And as a result, we've responded poorly, sinfully, manipulatively. And we come, Lord, that you would cause us to be able to have our hearts melted so that we can minister to others, Lord. This is a heavy truth, God, that 
we all need help with. I need help with this, Lord. So we pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name.